This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you? Today, taking a look at some export market opportunities for malting barley out of Australia. And there are quite a few opportunities around at the moment. As you know, since 2020, the door's basically been closed on the Chinese market after it put that 80% tariff on Australian barley back in 2020. But it's now going into really big markets like Saudi Arabia. It's even going into South America, Canada and Japan, taking a look at those opportunities shortly here on the Country Hour. And also, if you just hate seeing things go to waste, then have a listen to this. A couple of passion fruit farmers from WA's southwest have worked out a way to locally process and sell not only their own seconds, but seconds from other growers in the region. And the product is being used to make some funky tasting beer. What we really like as well is that it was local farmers who produced this fruit uh, and also it's a local brewery. So within a 10 kilometre radius, you've got all these businesses coming together to make a single product. All the details about that after half past 12 today. Six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia. And a new concept has been developed to reward farmers who are passionate about soil carbon and want to accrue carbon credits for their efforts without having to be locked in to a carbon project. Now, the concept, it's called a carbon wallet, and it's been developed by head of the WA Farmers Grain Section, Mick Fells, who says the current system is actually a disincentive to build soil carbon. Mick, how does this carbon wallet concept actually work? The idea is that they could sign up, get their farm, and not sign up to a contract, but get their farm baselined now or when they're ready, the carbon levels in their soil and things, and then start accruing the value in any uh, carbon they're building in their soil without having to be signed up to a project. So the reason why we need this is that presently, if you, if you want to do that, you have to first sign up to a project with the clean energy regulator, and um, it's very difficult to do it yourself. So... Most people, the idea is that you sign up with one of these third-party companies who take anywhere from sort of 20 to 40% of the value of the carbon credits in order to manage it for you. And it's just such a big threshold for people to try to get their head around. And value-wise as well, it, it doesn't look very attractive. So it's holding people back. And a lot of farmers, I think they'd get going a bit quicker on, on carbon storage if they felt they could be rewarded for it because at at present there's a a perverse incentive for people to delay it (laughs) until they sign up to a project. So it's actually, instead of, you know, the the carbon credit projects accelerating the process of farmers storing carbon in the soil, it's actually holding it back because people are thinking, I'm not going to do all this stuff that's, you know, going to build carbon in my soils until I've signed up and I don't want to sign up now. So the idea of a carbon wallet is basically to um, allow people to start accruing the carbon credits in their farming system without having to sign up to a project. So you, you need to get that baseline survey done mm. firstly. Have you yep. done that at your place? We haven't done it. I mean, you can't actually do it at the moment without signing up to a project. And I'm not signing my farm away for 25 years, losing control of how I farm it. 
in order to to do the things that I'm passionate about on our farm. So no, I haven't formally baselined our farm, but yes, we are actually mapping the carbon across our farm using some pretty cool technology that we've mounted on our cedar, a Severus um, unit, which um, maps the organic carbon basically every 24 metres, which is the width of our cedar across the farm. So we did that this year. I'm building carbon for soil productivity and you know sustainability. I'm not doing it to save the world, but I think that's a pretty useful <laughs> side effect. So the main reason I'm doing it is because I want to actually monitor what's happening on our farm and, and what, what's improving soil carbon, what's making it worse. So if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So that's why we're measuring it. But I'd love to be able to add a line to our balance sheet, which is the carbon that we've stored since we first baselined our farm. And by rights, I should be able to do that. But at the moment, I can't. So what's sort of stopping this carbon wallet system that you're suggesting getting up and running? Well, I don't know if it's legislation or regulation, but under the clean energy regulator at the moment, the, the process is you have to apply for a project. It has to be approved and then you can um, baseline your farm. And after that, you can start accruing ACUs, which is the carbon credits. And there's just too many steps and too many um, snouts in the trough, basically, and that, that's stopping people from doing it. So I think we need to loosen that up a bit, keep the rigour in terms of the scientific rigour of how people are baselining their farms, but get rid of that bureaucratic hurdle of having to um, you know, be part of a, a massive project before you can even start on this process. So if you, you know, if it was possible to just have the this carbon wallet and you had those sort of carbon credits within your wallet, what, what advantage does that give individual farmers? What do you get out of that? Well, it means that we can retain the value, the carbon credit value of the positive improvements to our soil instead of having to relinquish them. Because at the moment, let's say I, I add 100 tonnes per hectare of carbon to my soil, every year for the next 10 years. So that's just a, a number plucked out of the air. But let's say I do. If I'm not signed up to a project, you know, I don't get any recognition of that under the current schemes. So what actually, the current system, how it works is the people who have mined their soil and flogged it down to nothing, where, where they've given themselves good scope to build soil carbon, they're the ones who get rewarded if they sign up to a project. And the majority of farmers who are actually already, you know, really working hard to improve their soil none of that's recognised because if they're doing it now and they sign up to a project in 10 years, everything they've done between now and then is, is lost. So I think it's really important that if we are building soil carbon, we should have access to the, the value of that without having to actually uh, liquidate it. it. It should be a line item on our balance sheet with a value and potentially down the track, um, it may have quite a significant value and, and we've earned it through our practices. So we should the system should allow us to um, actually show it as a, as a line on our balance sheet. So what sort of value does it give you as a farmer then? Look, the main reason that most people are doing this, including myself, is for productivity. It's very clear that building soil carbon, if it's stable soil carbon, is, is just hugely valuable in terms of productivity. And, uh, you know, the no-till revolution 20, 30 years ago was the start of all this for us. And, you know, we've built our soil health a lot but some of our farming systems still still aren't building soil carbon but there's a lot of work to be done on that but the main main reason for trying to build soil carbon is it improves your water holding capacity it improves your cation exchange capacity uh, reduces the non-wetting nature of your soils there's just so many benefits and we've seen our yields increase by a ton of the hectare over the last 10 years just with the improvements that we've made over that period so for most people that is 
the goal is to improve your productivity and sustainability. But, you know, in the current world, there's also value for the benefits that that has on removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So um, that should be uh, recognised as well. So whose door do you need to knock on to get this approved? So this is a federal issue. The Clean Energy Regulator is a a national um, body. So, yeah, we need to work on this through the federal government and we do that through the peak, the national peak. So we've got Grain Producers Australia and Grain Growers Limited are the two national peaks for grains so, and obviously through the NFF. So that, that's the sort of chain of command, if you like, in terms of advocacy, how we have to go about this. But, yeah, through the federal government is, is ultimately where we need to see some movement on this. But I have already spoken to the, the State Minister for Agriculture, Alana McTiernan, um, just last week and floated this this item. So that's a good place to start. I know she's very passionate about exactly these issues. So um, we're looking for some support there and then ultimately with the federal government and see see if we can get a grand swell for what's actually a really logical sort of change. And it's not about putting money in farmers' pockets. It's actually about speeding up the adoption of this stuff because at the moment, the current system is actually, perversely, it's a disincentive for people to build soil carbon and we need to actually put incentives in place and this would be a really positive way to do that. Mick, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Blenda. Mick Fells, who's head of the WA Farmers Grain Section. What do you think of the idea? Is it time to shake the system up a little bit? I mean, Mick's saying that the current system where you need to sign up to one of these big carbon projects is actually putting farmers off. You know, it's a disincentive to uh, build soil carbon. So does it need a new idea like this carbon wallet. What do you think of it? Uh, Farmers being rewarded, recognised for the carbon they're building in their soil, not having to sign up with a carbon project, getting rid of that bureaucracy. And do you agree with the other point Mick was saying that, you know, farmers who've flogged their soils are the ones who are actually being rewarded by signing up to these carbon projects and the ones that are doing all the, the good work building the soil carbon are missing out. What do you think? The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. This in from Mike from Esperance who says on the carbon storage, the simple question is what happens if a farmer's carbon levels drop in the future years? Will they be forced to pay a penalty? Send in your thoughts on the text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Quarter past twelve. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Australian malting barley is continuing to find a home in export markets beyond China, which imposed an 80% tariff on Australian barley in 2020 and basically closed the door on that market. Ag Scientia grain analyst Lloyd George says most Australian barley now goes to Saudi Arabia, but it's also going into South America and even Canada, which is shopping around for barley after its own crops were hit by drought. In fact, the third shipment of Australian barley this year is believed to be on its way to Canada right now. Lloyd George says dry conditions overseas have certainly opened up the market opportunities. Really nasty drought in North America. Uh, so that extended through the, the US Northern Plains, uh, which is you know, kind of Dakotas uh, in around there, grow a lot of barley, and also extending up into the Canadian prairies, again, grow a lot of barley. That barley is uh, going into molsters, 
but also going into you know, other areas, including South America. So in the absence of that barley, there's been an opportunity for Australian barley uh, heading over into Canada, but also into South America. And so we've seen a sharp increase in, uh, in Australian malting barley exports uh, going into both Canada, uh, but also into South America. Has that happened before? It's always a little bit difficult because Australian barley exports uh, traditionally weren't published up until just um, you know, a few years back, so we haven't got actual history, but I think it's actually happened on isolated occasions as well. The last savage drought in those areas was probably back about a decade ago. And Lloyd, I understand now that I think that the third shipment is on the water headed to Canada as we speak. Yeah, there's um, there's been a couple of cargoes that have already been shipped into there already, so that's about going to equate to just a little bit over 60,000 tonnes and more on the way. Logistically, that's a long way for it to be shipped. Uh, it, it, it is, but uh, you know, it's not the uh, it's not not the only kind of long shipping route that uh, that's out there. I mean, Australian Australian uh, canola, um, uh, the vast bulk of it heads into into Europe, so which is going to be equally as far, a little bit longer. Going to continue uh, ongoing. Canada is uh, you know, planting their crops uh, at the moment. You know, really just wrapping that up. And uh, they're off to a reasonable start this year, so uh, you would expect that to uh, continue after they harvest their new crop, which is uh, still a couple of months off. Okay, so Australian barley may just fill, fill the gap for that short term? Uh, exactly, and much the same in South America. I would expect that the uh, Canadian supplies for the 22-23 year will uh, probably displace the Australian supplies going into there. Um, hopefully we may continue, but history has said in the past that's where those uh, supplies come from. Lloyd, you said Saudi Arabia now the biggest buyer of Australian barley, but where else is it going? Australian barley is heading into heading into Japan, where Japan is just about sourcing the vast, you know, nearly 100% of their barley now from Australia, which has been historically cheaper than what it normally would be, because one, China isn't importing it, but we've also, you know, on the on the heels of two massive years, and Australian barley has had to get cheaper to find more markets. Another interesting one that that has emerged in the last little while has been Jordan. Now, Jordan really hadn't taken Australian barley before, from what I can see, but they're heading up towards taking yeah, nearly half a million tonnes. And that's just because it's, it's, been, it's been competitive. Also, more difficult to access uh, barley out of the Black Sea as well with the issues in Ukraine. And we probably should point out that we're talking about cheap Australian barley, but that's all relative, isn't it? Because the price is actually quite good. Lloyd George from Ag Scientia speaking to Angus Furley. 20 past 12, we're talking about those incredible prices for um, malting barley in some markets. Uh, the price is also pretty incredible as you wander through the supermarkets at the moment. And just while you're probably still absorbing the fact that iceberg lettuce have sold for as much as $12 a head this year. Now you have to get your head around paying $11.99 for a 250-gram punnet of strawberries. 
That was the price spotted in a Canberra supermarket. And it's all because supply from Queensland growers is about a month behind due to crops affected by wet weather and disease. Queensland Strawberry Growers President Adrian Schultz thinks the price sets a new record. Yes. <laughs> Put it bluntly, it is. That, that would be a record. But look, the thing to remember, though, is that people aren't getting rich on these prices. It's because of an extreme shortage. For example, um, I'm aware of a 400,000, 500,000 plant farm. That's 10 hectares of strawberries. And he picked 40 trays, which is about 80-odd 80, 80 punnets. Now, even at $30 a punnet, if he was getting $30 a punnet, he'd be losing money because he's had to put his staff across 10 hectares to get that amount of strawberries. So it sounds like a lot of money, but even at $30 a punnet, he would still be losing money. And so when you consider that in August last year, I was writing stories about strawberries being sold for three punnets, for $2, it's shocking. It's a complete turnaround, isn't it? And I seriously doubt if we're going to see those sorts of prices this season. Uh, I'd be very, very surprised. Um, and this is where we need the supermarkets to step in and support the farmers because obviously production hopefully will improve over the coming weeks. But what we've got to remember is normally at this time of year where the price is fairly decent is where we recoup all our setup costs. And at the moment, 50% increase in fuel costs. Our packaging costs have gone up as well. The cost of fertiliser and inputs has, in some cases, doubled. Uh, a lot of farms have got uh, massive cash flow problems because, as I said, we're trying to retain our workforce, but we've got very little cash coming into the business. So um, it could have a major impact on, on, on a number of farms. I understand that you've also had real disease issues adding to this strawberry shortage. So at the beginning of our season, uh, we generally uh, have a situation where we have to deal with um, diseases in the soil. These are normal diseases that we, we encounter every year, which is uh, fusarium and pythium and crown rots, colotoxicum. But the excessive wet period, four to six weeks just after planting, allowed those diseases to thrive, which has allowed a secondary disease called neopestiloteopsis that we've never had to deal with before, but which exists all around us, has certainly uh, had a huge impact and has wiped out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of plants. And it's always existed, but it's never been a major issue for us here. It has been in America, and um, that's why we're able to to get information about it quite quickly. But the actual disease is called Neopestiloteopsis. And this Neopestiloteopsis is a secondary infection, but it's more spreadable. There's a higher death rate because of it. It's coming in and creating a whole other situation that we haven't had to deal with before, uh, simply because of the weather conditions. And do the plants at all recover or are they dead? Well, that's what we're looking to find out. Like That's what we've been talking to our American counterparts about. And basically they're saying, look, if the weather conditions do improve and they haven't been too badly damaged, they can come back. But we're just about to head into July. We've only got three months of our season left. The farmers, you know, they've got to make the decision. Do they put the effort and spend the money to maintain and keep these plants going or do they just spray them out?
I think people are just going to have to accept that strawberries are going to be uh, a little bit more expensive for the next four weeks, probably. Queensland Strawberry Growers President Adrian Schultz with Jennifer Nichols. Here in WA, just having a look at the prices in the main supermarkets at Coles and Woolworths, a 350 gram punnet of strawberries, $10.90, and a 250 gram punnet, $6.90. So not quite at those heady heights over in Canberra, a 250-gram punnet for eleven ninety nine. Twenty-five 25 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Very shortly, an update from the newsroom for you, then off to the Bureau of Meteorology to check conditions around the state. First, though, the world's top mining companies are expected to change their operations to focus more on critical minerals. And all mining companies will have to get serious with ESG, which is environmental social governance. Now, these are some of the key messages in the latest Global Mine Report by PricewaterhouseCoopers. Critical minerals are those used in new technologies like batteries, so minerals like copper, nickel, lithium and cobalt. And this annual report was released this week and it also includes a list of the top 40 best-performing mining companies. Australia's iron ore miners BHP and Rio Tinto topped that list. But PwC global mining leader Paul Bendel says it's their focus on critical minerals that's key. Clearly iron ore have been a driving force in their profitability. But copper, we see is what copper is, commodity price is, is high at the moment. It's clearly a future metal. Its demand is going to be significant going forward as well. So BHP and Rio in particular have substantial copper assets uh, within their portfolios. I also found an interesting point from Tianchi Lithium Corporation. So that's sitting at number 15 this year, uh, up 22 places from last year. Lithium, we know it's it's nothing new that there's a, a bit of a an interest in lithium at the moment. But was that a surprise to see such a rise from Tianchi? So the overall top 40 market capitalizations increased by 7%. But if you were to look at lithium, that's 56% our performance on the market. Graphite, 101%. Rare earth, 154%. So I'm not going to say it's going to continue at that sort of percentages, but if it does continue on at that clip and the top 40 continue to grow, but it's a more modest single-digit capitalisation, you are going to see what we might have seen in the past as small miners or less than top 40 miners will get into the top 40. For companies that don't have any exposure to critical minerals, where do you think they sit in, in five years' time? Oh Well, look, if you're a gold miner, uh, you will continue largely, I suspect, mining gold or ex- exploiting gold deposits or acquiring gold assets. We do need the larger miners, though, to put their balance sheets to work to accelerate the discovery and development of deposits of critical minerals. But that's not going to be all of them. I don't know whether the Chinese coal companies, for example, which are in the top 40, will necessarily do anything other than be looking for and mining coal in five years' time. But some of those top 40 will pivot their uh, acquisitions, their exploration efforts, their development spend into critical mineral deposits. The report has also mentioned ESG no longer being optional. How do you see that playing out? In a very short amount of time, and I'm talking the last 18 months, the conversations around ESG, around the board tables, uh, has become quite intense. 
our position, and I don't think it's a unique position, that you've got to get this right strategically, transparently, to be a successful company. Your stakeholder group is beyond your shareholders. So if you want to access capital, if you want to access finance, access insurance, if you want to have employees uh, who want to work for you, you've got to have good attention uh, on ESG. The other point I would make, though, it is going to be really complex. Complex, yes, on reporting, because you have lots of different frameworks, but also complex in that to satisfy one of those letters, you may be compromising another. And the obvious example is, as we search for net zero and reduced carbon emissions, the search for a metal like nickel is going to be increasingly intense. So we do know that to find and develop and permit nickel deposits, and indeed many deposits, it could be a decade. Whether we can wait a decade or not is another question. And also in the exploitation of those deposits, how do you promote and observe S, societal in, uh, element in that uh, acronym? That balancing between E and S in particular for mining companies has been always something, but they're going to have to really pay attention to this because uh, certainly in, in the Australian context, uh, accessing those nickel deposits, which are going to be further away, deeper, harder to get at, uh, is going to require bring the society, the communities along with you. How important is it, though, for those companies to be finding that balance between the E and the S in the ESG um, to be able to reach those targets you mentioned, net zero being a, a big one? Well, I, I think it's fundamentally important. If they don't get it right and transparently report on it and probably have that reporting assured, then you get, there are going to be consequences from a market capitalization perspective, as I say, ability to, to attract finance, to get employees. So really important. Now, I've thrown up a series of challenges. There are as many opportunities as there is challenges, but there needs to be hard work to find. PwC Global Mining Leader Paul Bendel speaking with Michelle Stanley about the annual mine report this year named A Critical Transition and the report looks at global trends in the resources industries every year. 29 to 1. Jonathan Beale is here. What's making the headlines, Jonathan? In the headlines, Belinda Homicide Squad detectives are investigating the death of a 32-year-old man at the Yonga Hill Immigration Detention Centre near Northam. Police responded to an incident at the facility about midnight and found a detainee with serious injuries. He was taken to Northam Hospital where he later died. Two men, also understood to be detainees, are assisting police with their inquiries. Official figures show WA's unemployment rate increased slightly in May but remains the lowest in the country. Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show the state's jobless rate rose 0.2 of 1% to 3.1% in the month. WA's participation rate rose 0.3 of 1% to 69.6%. The national unemployment rate is 3.9%. And Western Australia has today reported 14 historical COVID-19-related deaths and 6,249 new infections. The deaths date back to the 14th of May, and the youngest involves a man aged in his 30s. 262 people are in hospital with the virus, 10 of them in intensive care. More news, Belinda, at 1 o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that. It's 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour.
on ABC Local Radio, WA. Shortly here on the Country Hour, despite the rain that's been around in the last sort of week or so in the agricultural areas, there are still plenty of farmers that are really hanging out for a, a good soaking rain. In fact, some of the canola crops haven't even germinated at this point and, well, looking terrible at the moment. You'll meet a couple of farmers shortly who are in that situation. And just before the news that won off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market today, first off to the Bureau of Meteorology and catching up with Angeline Prasad this afternoon. Angeline, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. And there is a little bit of rain on, on the way this weekend. So what can you see? Is there anything good in terms of a soaking rain for some of those in the agricultural areas? Good afternoon, Belinda. Um, there will be some rain, and you're absolutely right about the lack of rain in the southwest. And we've seen some good frontal systems come through this month. But if you look at um, the rainfall percentages for the month, um, it, it is you know still quite dry across the southwest land division. Rainfall is generally on average about 40 to 60 percent below what we would normally expect at this time of the year. And unfortunately, that has been the, the climate outlook for the southwest of the state. We will see um, a, a drier winter. Uh, well, the winter will be drier this this uh, uh, this year. Now, looking at uh, the weather over the next few days, um, yes. Yeah, so today is you know fairly sunny, a little bit warmer today, um, but tomorrow there is a, a stronger cold front uh, coming through. We did have a cold front move through yesterday evening, but um, didn't produce much rain across the. Um, uh, in fact very little uh, apart from the southwest of the southwest coast where we saw some good rainfall but elsewhere it was uh, it was barely a smidge so um that the next cold front that is coming through it will um, move across um the southwest of the state tomorrow afternoon and evening in terms of rainfall tomorrow generally um across the southern parts of um of the uh the central weed belt um, and the all of the great southern um, should see about five to ten millimeters um, north of about southern cross tomorrow uh, we could see about ten to twenty millimeters and that's because there is a cloud band further north so um, that cloud band does um, thicken um, so it is um, uh, fairly active tomorrow so ten to millimeters basically north of southern cross elsewhere about five to 10 millimeters. The far western parts of the um, um, sort of um, the far western parts of the great southern sort of west of Katanning could see uh, 10 to 20 millimeters tomorrow as that frontal uh, with that frontal passage. Um, and then um, on Saturday, uh, we could potentially see um, basically south of Meriden um, and across uh, throughout the the Great Southern District, we could see another five to ten millimeters of rainfall, and then on Sunday, um, uh, that rainfall is likely to continue, especially south of um, um, Meridian and Southern Cross. We could see another five to ten millimeters before it does dry up. So, all in all, we could be looking at you know basically ten to thirty millimeters over the next few days um, across those agricultural areas. Um, and the, the rainfall is going to be heavier closer to the southwest coast. Um, but yes, there is a chance of getting some rain. Now, it is going to be a bit hit and miss. Um, so some areas could get as low as 10, um, whereas other places could, you know, for sure get you know, a bit of that soaking rain. Um, so 
that frontal system that is going to come through, um, it moves um, east on Saturday across the southern parts of the state and following that cold front is a fairly uh, brisk westerly flow. Um, so it is going to be quite windy across the southern uh, parts of the state on Saturday. Um, and that's likely to continue into Sunday. So that's what keeps the rain going. The flow is fairly westerly, so moist onshore flow with troughs embedded within that uh, brisk, unstable westerly flow will continue to produce um, showery weather and the old thunderstorm um, across the southern parts of the state before it clears when the next ridge of high pressure arrives um, early next week, sort of Sunday night into Monday. Now, the cloud band that's um, uh, spreading further north, so we've got a cloud band that's extending uh, from the southern parts of the Pilbara into the Gascoigne, the central west, uh, the, uh, the northern parts of the uh, central wheat belt into the gold fields interior and all the way to Eucla. That is going to persist until um, until um, Saturday at least, and we are looking at some significant rainfall, um, especially across uh, the um, the the northern parts of um, oh sorry the, the the western parts of the Gascoigne and much of the central west. So today we're expecting about five to ten millimeters, sort of from Coral Bay to the Shark Bay area and extending all the way to Mount Magnet. There could be isolated falls, um, 10 to 20 millimetres. Tomorrow, sort of the heavier falls shift from uh, the Shark Bay area to about um, Durian Bay and extending all the way to about um, uh, Payne's Find, um, where we could see 20 to 30 millimetres and isolated 30 to 50 millimetres. So there is some good rainfall um, for parts of the state um, and it will be here and there generally but yes it is going to be a wet uh, weekend uh, for the southern half of the state. The cloud band does weaken from later Saturday into Sunday. Well hopefully there's enough in that just to keep people going for a little bit longer or the crops going anyway Angeline. This afternoon any warnings? Yes um, so um, today we have got um, coastal wind warnings out. So there's strong wind warning for the Bunbury and Lewin coasts. Tomorrow um, um, with that coastal front uh, uh, sorry, with that frontal system coming through, we are looking at gales across the southwest. So Perth coast, Bunbury and Lewin are in for a gale warning. This will be strong wind warning for the Perth, Geraldton, Lancelin, Albany and Esperance coasts. Now with this uh, with that vigorous uh, west to southwest flow, we are looking at significant wave heights, generally going to be 5 to 6 meters so they could be some dangerous surf also we're experiencing um uh, king tides this week um so there could be some localized coastal flooding with those higher than normal tides uh this uh from friday into the weekend also with that frontal system coming through there's that risk of damaging winds across the far southwest um so um there will there will definitely be more warnings over the next few days belinda Angeline, thank you so much. It is 21 to 1. Richard Hudson, much rain about? Not heaps, but I know the surfers are going to be happy with that report from Angeline. That sort of swell and waves coming through. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, the only real region to get any rain was in the Gascoigne. Bulardi, 9. Carnarvon had between 4 and 9 mils. Challa, 11. Kudadi, 10. Q, 5. Denham, 11. Hill Springs, 6. Mountain Area, 11. Mergu, 17. Shark Bay, 9. Steep Point, 6. Tamala, 25. And Ewan, 16. Nothing really worth reading out for the rest of the northern and eastern forecast districts. But in the southwest, Land Division, 
Nothing in the Central West, really. In the Lower West, four, four mills at Ancatel and four for Jarradale. And then in the South West, Lewin, 20, Collie, 5, Carrydale, 36, topped it. Um, Margaret River, 13, Mile Up, 6, Rosa Brook, 11, Scott River, 16, Walpole Forestry, 5. In the Southern Coastal Region, yeah, two mills topped it, and in the Great Southern Region, Chaming Up topped it uh, with two mills as well. Apart from that, everything's sort of one and below. But overall, just from all the rainfall figures that we've been reading out in the last little while, it certainly sounds like the majority of farms in Western Australia's grain-growing regions have received some pretty good rain. And that should hopefully help crops establish for what's shaping up to be a pretty good or even very good season. Earlier in the week, a livestock farmer in the Esperance region was saying this is probably going to be his best grazing season in about 28 years. He's at Conding Up. That's right on the south coast and just east of Esperance. But you've only got to go 30 kilometres northeast of Esperance and some of the canola crops still haven't germinated due to the conditions they've had over the last month or so, just that lack of rain. Ashley Reichstein says this is probably the worst crop he's seen in about 20 years. Oh, on our sort of supposedly southern high rainfall property, it's... Uh... It's terrible. It doesn't look very good at all <laughs> compared to uh, what I've managed to grow in other years and looking at uh, what people are growing in other areas of the Esperance district. And what has been the cause of this crop being not up to your usual standard? A few little factors. Um, probably not sampling on some sampling non-wetting country, but also we're in a little sort of strip here, which is su- supposedly um, very reliable in the Esperance district, but We've been missing out this year, so uh, we've only had about 90 mils since the start of December last year, so we've missed out. We'd quite happily be up at around 150 mils by now. We'd have a very nice wet profile. The non-wetting issues would, would have probably been negated by some decent falls, but I think since I've had my canola, we've had been getting falls of like five to eight mils over a period of 24 hours, so... We certainly need a good drenching rain to get the rest of it germinated. Can you describe to me what the canola is looking like at the moment compared to what it was looking like last year? Well, this time last year, you'd you'd drive past and the paddock would just be nearly at full canopy closure on that property down there. I think it's been been signed about six to seven weeks. Probably only this week I can drive past and see a tinge of green across the paddock. I do go across the paddock and I can still see quite a few bare areas where it hasn't germinated. Have other farmers in your area had the same sort of difficulties? Yeah, I think they have. I know there's sort of people, probably I was talking to one farmer about three weeks ago, he was sort of up around Scadden and he'd stopped seeding because it was too dry. He said he still had about 600 hectares to go. And then the contrast is there's guys out at Beaumont and out at Cascades and Mungalup, which are still trying to get crop in. They've stopped seeding because it's too wet. Uh, They just keep on getting bogged. What are you hoping for come the next couple of weeks to help improve the crop? Well, today we've got a beautiful sunny day, so a few more of those, but interspersed with a, <laughs> maybe um, 20 mil downpours, which would be lovely. Yeah. My theory is if it's not going to rain, it might as well be sunny and nice. Owner of Lorena Farms, Ashley Reichstein, speaking with Sophie Johnson about how the lack of rain has affected his canola this season.
16 to 1. Well, some farmers in WA's northern grain growing regions haven't quite got the rain they'd hoped for either. Graham Reid farms with his family near Latham, about 240 kilometres southeast of Geraldton. Basically, he's still waiting for a break to the season. We got about 35 mil in March and some of those storms in March. Um, and since then, we've had about, I think, 12 or 14 mil in April and about the same in May and about not quite that much even in June. Um, so, yeah, we, we're struggling a bit. So 60-odd mils roughly for the growing season so far. Yeah, that's how, right. How are things looking on the ground? Look, there's some patches uh, are not too bad. There's quite a lot of green around there from the summer rains, uh, so there must be moisture down further down. But we basically haven't had enough rain for some of the crop, uh, heavy enough rain to actually get it to germinate properly. Um, and I know I'm no Robinson Crusoe. There's probably plenty of other places around about, but even around Latham, it's been very strippy. There's places out east of Latham that have had 300 millimetres in storms, and um, basically what's happening there, the strips of rain are, are following those strips, um, and uh, I've seen it all happen before, but we, we're once again in a dry, in a dry strip. <laughs> yeah, you're not in the good strip at the moment. So Not at the moment, no. Pr- pretty patchy by the sound of things. Some crop up, but quite small. Other crops yep. still sitting in the ground waiting for a decent drop. How much longer do you think you've got, given your experience, Graham? You've been farming there for a while. Um, how many more weeks do you have to get a rain to get that crop out of the ground to get a, a, an average season? They're talking about more rain on Friday. I hope that this time when they promise us some rain, we actually get a decent rain because that's all we need. If we get a you know, a decent drop of rain, if we're lucky enough to jag 20 millimetres of rain and get everything up and going, uh, the season could quite well turn out to be uh, at least an average season probably. So you just really need that break, don't you? That's right. We haven't had a proper winter break yet. That's right. Yeah, you would have seen all this before. Oh, many times, Errol. I've been farming my own right for about 50 years, but um, I've seen plenty of seasons like this and worse. Last year would have been a, a cracker for you. Yep, it was once we tidied up all the mess that Cyclone Saroja did there. We, we had a cracker for sure, yeah. And, and basically, um, we've put our crop in this year. I think pretty well everybody in the, in the farming areas have put their crop in um, um, on the on the results of last year's season, we we had a good crop and we were able to defer a lot of wheat payments in there, and um, you know we, we'll get by just simply for that. But it's, um, that's what sort of put people have put the crop in on that. Basically, you know you've just about got to have an absolutely better than average or not almost record year. Well, a while ago anyway, there to to cover the costs. But basically, we're hoping that if we can get even a half, you know, decent uh, sort of run from now on, um, with the with the prices there uh, the, as they are at the moment because of all the problems with, throughout the world, um, we'll actually we won't have to have such a ter- terrifically good crop to cover our costs because of the prices. But we you know we need to actually get the rain to take advantage of those. With the weather that was coming through last week and last weekend, did you go and put much nitrogen on? Uh, most of our nitrogen we put on before we seeded this year um, to get the best bang for our buck. We covered it up, but we did put some nitrogen on uh, in anticipation of the rain that basically didn't – well, we got a little bit of rain, but um, nothing like what we were promised. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
You got about eight mils from that rain. Yeah, about yeah, we had about eight mil, but that varied round about. You know, there was some people only got five mil, some people got ten mil, but you know, we, we, that was sort of about the range. Yeah. We you know we you know Robinson Crusoe's. I'm sure there'll be plenty of other people around in exactly the same situation as we are. And as you say, you've been there long enough to know that it's not too late. You just need that twenty mil pretty soon, and That's you'll be right. right. Yeah, yeah. No, if we can get a good start now there, it's not too late. No, not by any means. Latham farmer Graham Reed with Joe Prendergast. And as Graham was saying, there'll be other people in the same boat. There certainly are. This text just through from Jocelyn saying there's also a big, dry, patchy area in the North Stirlings district. So that's about 300 kilometres southeast of Perth. The text is 0448922604. If you want to shoot through a text and be part of the conversation this afternoon, 11 minutes to one. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Off to Mount Barker shortly to take a look at the yarding and the prices at the cattle market today. Just before that, some Western Australian farmers have found a great way to make money out of second grade or wasted fruit. They're using it to make trendy sour beers. Georgia Hargreaves has the story. Most fruit or veggie growers will tell you that unfortunately between 15 and 30% of their crop is usually unsellable because it's either undersized, slightly blemished or classified as ugly. Mitchell East grows passion fruit near Manjimup in WA's southwest and he didn't like the idea of so much of his fruit going to waste so he decided to get into the processing game. Yeah, so um, it was, I guess, um, a bit of interest from we had breweries who were getting in contact with us about our passion fruit. And then we started getting questions about, all right, what other products could you possibly supply? And we hadn't thought a lot about it, but we had recently purchased a new machine which could take the seeds out of our passion fruit pulp, which made it a much more user-friendly product for breweries. And we realised that that was a bit more versatile and we could start processing things like berries, stone fruit, figs um, and all other sort of softer fruits that would go through the machine. And it turns them into a puree and, again, into a usable format. It's all local fruit that we buy from farmers around our region uh, and it's a raw, unpasteurised product as well, which is fairly rare and uncommon um, because a lot of the imported stuff or even interstate stuff generally has a longest shelf life but because we um, we can get it local and in season um, we can supply pretty fresh and keep the the true nature of the fruit and keep the aromas in the fruit which is what brewers uh, uh, brewers are after you're probably imagining processing equipment that costs millions of dollars but Mitchell East's partner is Jennifer Risley and she says the unit on their farm is at the other end of the scale. No, no, um, various bits of machinery have been foraged from all over the farm or other people's setups. So Mitch refers to it as a bit of a Mad Max setup, but we do have old onion or potato harvesting or processing bits of equipment. Um, lots of it has had a new paint job um, and been uh, reimagined uh, for a new sort of purpose. There's bits of, I think, an apple grater in here. Uh, so we, we have repurposed bits and bobs to keep that uh, outlay cost pretty low because we weren't sure that this was going to be all that effective. We, we weren't really certain that it would work. 
Some of their fruit puree is now being sold to different breweries that are experimenting with funky sour beers. A lot of the fruit in most sour beers comes from imported syrups from countries like China. But Ed Fallons is the managing director of Tall Timbers Brewery in Manjimup, and he loves the idea of using locally sourced fruit. You get a per kilo rate of pulped plum or strawberry or fajoa or whatever you want, and um, it just didn't stack up from what you could bring it in from China for. But with the increased cost, it's not that far off the mark, but then obviously now without the preservatives and pasteurisation and nuking, plus it's much better quality fruit, we're also finding we need to use quite a bit less. So really we're too early on and we're only sort of done plums and strawberries, I think at the moment, and passion fruit, but obviously if we need less, it also is affecting the price, you know. So we're really hoping that once Mitchell has sort of sorted and we've done some experimenting, that, um, yeah, it's right on the money. And I think every I don't think there'd be a brewery in Australia that would not use Australian fruit if it was economically viable. So things are looking good. So these fruits are being used for sour beers and brewers are trialling all sorts of flavour profiles using puree made from second-grade fruit. Florian von Gutenberg is one of the brewers who helped create the first Queen Garnet plum sour beer. He says sours are getting pretty trendy. I don't think they've peaked yet. I think traditionally it's been, the impression has been that it's more of a summer beer because they are very refreshing. But I think they are starting to become a year-round thing. So how is sours different to normal standard beer? So for normal beer, we use um, um, beer yeasts, whereas the sours get fermented with lactic acid bacteria. So in this case, it was a kettle sour, which means the lactic acid bacteria go into the kettle, and we leave it there for 48 hours. 24, yeah. 24 in this yeah. case, until it hits a certain pH. And then once we're happy with the degree of acidity, then it um, gets boiled and then it goes into the fermenter for fermentation with normal yeast or whatever. So if you like the taste of sour beers, you'd be happy to hear that some are being brewed with locally grown fruit that would otherwise go to waste. And for farmers like Mitchell East, that's important because wasted fruit also means wasted profits. Passion fruit is a, a, a product that breaks down very quickly. Uh, it it's a crop that comes on heavy at stages uh, and depending on market variances uh, you might have a, an oversupply of product uh, and because it doesn't store uh, that well say for instance like apples where you can bring it out slowly you kind of have to sell it uh, and you're at the uh, if the market isn't um, ready for that fruit you kind of either have to take the lower uh, prices um, but luckily enough for us, we can um, means that we can grade out our best quality and sell that to the markets and that everyone can um, have in Perth. And the seconds or anything that we don't deem as, as good a quality, we can then process and use 100% of our crop. Whereas before, we were probably only using about 70% of our crop um, and, uh, and as well as the other growers as well. They get to use up basically 100% of their crop too. Dr Elizabeth Jackson is a food supply chain expert from Curtin Uni and she loves the innovative and entrepreneurial spirit, pardon the pun, of these Manjimup farmers. But what's really interesting about their efforts is that they're able to make products that are economically viable and this is what we see in food supply chains so often is there is plenty of waste and there is plenty of things to do with that waste. The problem is Adding value to that waste is just not economically viable. 
So any producer, any business that's actually able to come up with an innovative process for making food waste, creating a product that is economically viable for transforming uh, wasted food into attractive food for consumers, that's the goose that's laid the golden egg because it's not only great innovation, but it's the right thing to do as well. Curtin University supply chain expert Dr Elizabeth Jackson ending that report from Georgia Hargreaves. If you want to read more about this, just make your way to the ABC Rural website or just search ABC Rural and Sour and you will find Georgia's story. Four minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Uh, News for you at one. Firstly, though, off to the markets and there was a cattle sale at Mount Barker this morning. Tracy Kilner is there now. How did it go, Tracy? 425 head today. That's up 196 from last week. And a highlight of the sale was there's 43 cow and calf units on offer. Heavy cows topped at 340 cents, while Angus second carver cow and calf units made $3,800 per unit. Wiener steers topped at 712 cents and heifers at 590 cents a kilo. Heavy bulls gained 10 cents with demand selling to a top of 328 cents a kilo. The heavyweight Wiener steers over 330 kilos sold for 614 to 618 cents. Medium weight steers made from 604 to 634 cents. And the lightweight steer calves returned 630 to 712 cents. Medium weight heifers made 560 to 590 cents and lightweights from 545 to 580 cents a kilo. A quality run of yearling steers sold from 560 to 616 cents and yearling heifers sold for 462 cents. Grown steers made 376 to 398 cents to processors. Heavy prime cows sold from 280 to 338 cents while the store cows made 220 to 316 cents to feeder buyers. Heavy bulls gained, selling for 290 to 328 cents, and lighter weight bulls returned 318 to 514 cents a kilo. The cow and calf units sold from 2,250 up to 3,800 dollars per unit, depending on quality. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for that. Earlier in the hour, you heard from Mick Fells. And Mick is the president of the WA Farmers Grain Section. He's come up with a concept that he's calling a carbon wallet. And it's been developed to reward farmers who are passionate about soil carbon and want to accrue carbon credits for their efforts without having to be locked into a carbon project. A few of you are keen on the idea. Jeff Edwards says, I absolutely support Mick Fell's idea of a carbon wallet. Some of us are trying so hard in this space but continue to be hit with bureaucratic roadblocks. This from Tony in Denmark. Mick Fells is right. The National Carbon Credit System funds those who have exploited their country to the max. The resulting low carbon levels makes it easy for them to improve carbon levels and earn money. It's a shame those who've cared for the country and native vegetation are excluded. And then this on the text from Ben in Minganew. Some good points made on the Country Hour today by Mick Fells. Scepticism about the science and economics of carbon projects is definitely a handbrake. Makes sense to be able to create an asset, then sell it 
rather than selling a product you don't yet have. Much lower risk for all. Thanks so much for your uh, comments on that. I have put a call into the Agriculture Minister, Alana McTiernan, to see what she thinks of the idea. Hopefully we can hear from her tomorrow. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.